0: Wormwood is the new documentary from director Errol Morris. It's about a man named Eric Olson, who's trying to figure out what happened to his father, Frank. Frank Olson was a scientist for the CIA, who died in 1953 after falling out of a hotel window. According to the official story, Frank Olson was given LSD as part of a government project called MKUltra. He had a bad trip, and then Frank Olson committed suicide. But Eric doesn't believe the official story, and he spent his life trying to figure out exactly what happened. In this three-part podcast, Errol Morris will talk with people involved in the new movie, including the actor Peter Sarsgaard, and journalist John Ronson, host of The Butterfly Effect, who covered MK Ultra in his book, The Men Who Stare at Goats. But first, here's a clip from the film. In this scripted segment, Eric's father, played by Peter Sarsgaard, takes LSD for the first time. It's given to him by his boss, Sidney Gottlieb, who's played by Tim Blake Nelson. By now, you're probably feeling a little unusual. We have slipped a potential truth serum into your cordials.
1: You're all a bunch of jokers.
2: Huh? You're all a bunch of thespians. <laughs>
0: I think that you're the one on stage tonight, Dr. Olson.
2: <laughs> Today we're talking to Eric Olsen, the protagonist of my series Wormwood. I have been showing Eric rough cuts of the series for quite some time now. While we worked on it, I would show him various versions of it. But Eric had never, as far as I know, shown it to his brother until recently. Did you sit down and watch it with Niels?
1: He and his wife watched it on their own, as did, as did his daughter and he has two daughters, and they and their husbands watched it on their own also. And they then reported back to you? They did. And all all were very, uh, not only impressed, but moved by the telling. I mean, obviously they knew much, if not most, of what was, you know, the the, the the narrative of the film. Even if you've been close to it, it's very different to see it laid out this way. And it was for them.
2: I would have liked to have been a fly on the wall. The oddity of actually watching such a broad story condensed into a little more than four hours.
1: Four hours and 38 minutes, I think.
2: Don't know. I just work here.
1: Longer than Gone with the Wind. Longer than Lawrence of Arabia.
2: It's a long film. Someone asked me today, it really annoyed me, like so many things. Did it have to be so long? But yes, it had to be so long, because it's a very complex story. And it's not even one story. It's a story within a story within a story within a story. There are many, many, many stories. I could only hope to tell some of them, not all of them.
1: If you want the thing to have feeling, if you want the emotionality to come out, then then you need length. And it's kind of like the analogy for me is something like a a jazz solo on a tenor saxophone. I mean, if if it's not long, you don't you don't dive deeply into it. Yeah, you could you could compress it and you might have something of the structure, but you wouldn't have the feeling which, you know, has to be extended over time in order to exist at all. And I think that's that's what this film really has that no other telling of the story, you know, has had or could have just for one reason, they're not they're not long enough.
2: You mentioned *Gone with the Wind* and *Lawrence of Arabia*. If memory serves me correctly, they're both epics, and this is an epic. It's a story that spans so many, many, many decades, and it's not just decades of Eric Olson or even of the Olson family. It's decades of America right. and its policies. So I would call it an American epic.
1: That was a, a, an idea for a title you had at one point. Indeed it was. It wasn't a bad one, I thought. No.
2: How do you tell the story to people that you've just met? You don't want to alienate them. You still want to remain friends with them.
1: I try to dodge that question, or at least I have had. Now now that's going to be, you know, it's going to be a new world we're entering. A little harder. <laughs> or easier. I say watch the film. But for the rest of the, the you know, previous decades of my life, telling this story was incredibly difficult and... You know, I would, as I said, I would mostly try to dodge the question or change the subject or tell it in such a way that people would realize they didn't want to, you know, press further. Early on, you know, my, my brother and sister and I were very young. We would say something cryptic that we had no idea what we were actually saying. I mean, we would just, people would say in school, people, and they know your father died. They'd ask you how your father died, and we would say... He died of a fatal nervous breakdown. We had no idea what we were talking about and neither did anybody who heard that response, but that's a conversation stopper, guaranteed. (laughs) You know, if you wanna give a kind of a brief little blurb, I'd say, you know, it's a story about a guy who from a very young age gets a, a big load of what we would now call fake news dumped on his head. It's, it's it's a prolonged immersion in, in kind of falsity, lies, evasions, misrepresentations, distortions about something that's very central to your life and the attempt to sort out what's true and what's false and even to recognize why you care and gradually finding out that you can't answer these questions, these personal questions without also involving yourself in much larger historical questions, that your own personal life is embedded in some kind of broader narrative in a very complicated way. Very few people could have told it as Errol does, and I'm not trying to flatter him, but I think he may be the only guy in the country who could have told the story in this much depth, breadth, and complexity without making a complete mess of it.
2: One of the things that fascinates me about Wormwood, still fascinates me about Wormwood, we think of an investigation as having a fixed target, that it's not a moving target, it's a fixed target. Uh, Eric very eloquently describes this with a question. What happened in that room? What happened in room 1018A? Did Frank Olson jump? Was Frank Olson pushed? Was he executed by the CIA? What happened in that room? And what fascinates me, what still fascinates me about this story is it's a story about cover-ups, endless cover-ups, sleight of hand, misdirection, evasion, effacement, elision. You know, Look this way when what's going on is that way. Make it a story about LSD. Is it really a story about LSD at all, or is it something else? And time marches on, the 50s into the 60s, into the 70s, into the 80s, and the story changes. This is a country... Is this true of all countries? I don't know. But America seems to be defined by its cover-ups. I mean, we're waiting, at least some of us are waiting, for yet another impeachment in America. But it's interesting to remember Nixon went down not because of anything that he did that was out-and-out horrible, beyond-the-pale horrible, He went down for relatively minor offenses and the attempt to cover up the big stuff. This is a story from its outset of cover-ups, the version that was handed to the Olson family in the 50s,
1: a cover-up. I think one of the points there that interests me is that with Nixon, you had something that was concrete, namely this burglary, and then other stuff, the bombing of Cambodia, for example, which was more remote. I wouldn't say abstract, certainly for the people who experienced it, but it was, it was certainly more remote. In this story, too, you have something that's very concrete. You have this room. You have somebody dying by going out the window. So, and I think that's partly what makes this story something that's hard to let go of, is there's something very concrete, but behind it, there's all kinds of other stuff, If you're going to talk about cover-up and what's not known at any given point or how the, the known changes, you also have to ask, I think, a tougher question. The question is, do you want to know? What's the desire here? Do you really want to know? And what do you think the answer might look like? If you found it, could you stand it? The cover-up business and the you know, complexity business and, you know, geez, is it this? Did they do this? Did they do that? It covers up something that's much more fundamental, which is the question of do you actually want to know what this might have involved? And do you want to face the tougher questions of what does this mean? If this happened the way it seemed to have happened and now we know it did happen, the issues for you know the questions of democracy, the questions of the social contract. These are tough questions. They're much tougher than the, than the forensic questions that loom with this. So I think one of the things that's fascinating, I think it works on a kind of a, a kind of maybe an unconscious level when you're watching Wormwood. It's like Jesus, this thing is dealing with something that's very you know heavy, not just a murder. As, it's not that a murder is a lighthearted thing but this, this, is, this is something about the nature of what the country you know has done could do maybe is doing and I think that the, the really tough question here is desire do you want to it's know it's that
2: question you know I discovered that I asked the same questions at the end of my book Wilderness of Error I keep saying over and over again it's like I'm channeling you what does it mean What does it mean to do this? What does it mean to investigate something, to spend a good part of your life investigating something? Let's play a clip. This is talking about the time your family went to the White House, to the Oval Office of the White House after the story
1: came out about your dad. We're the only people in the whole history of this country whoever got an apology from the president in the Oval Office for the unintended consequences of some government policy. I mean, you really got to stop for a minute and pause and go, wow, how often does that happen? That would be zero. It doesn't happen. And it worked. They got us to drop the idea of a lawsuit instead proceed with this uh, what became a private bill in congress
2: it sounds like you regret how that trip ended up what do you wish you had said to the president
1: you know we didn't know what the president was going to say to us so it was hard to kind of pivot on that and come back with anything you first had to take in what was being dished out um do i regret I mean, I regret the episode that we, you know, we should have insisted upon some sort of resolution before we went to the White House. It's not a matter of what we should have said or not said. It was a question of a deal. Um, we should have insisted that the matter be resolved in some way because once we went to the White House, we lost our leverage. They the pers- portrayed themselves as people who had intervened in our behalf, ge- given us a very generous apology. We were grateful for the apology. The healing process had begun, all of which meant that the thing was already, had already lost its leverage as soon as we went to the White House. This was a PR moment.
2: You couldn't have known this going well we couldn't have it.
1: known it, but if you're asking me now, what do I regret it was that we didn't we weren't up to uh, you know up to the level of what was happening, not in terms of saying this versus saying that or making some comment or some you know ironic <laughs> you know comment about what they were doing it was we shouldn't have gone there until we had figured this out with these attorneys of what what this was going to lead to what exactly were they apologizing for? And what was the, going to be the compensation for it? That should have all been done in advance, and we didn't do that because we didn't know. You know, we were blindsided by this whole thing. It's not, you know, it's not often that you get this kind of invitation, and you know, you, you know, years later, you're kind of able to process it. You certainly weren't at the moment, at the time.
2: Donald Rumsfeld is sitting in that room, just off to the side. If you know where to look, you can see his legs in a lot of the photographs that were taken. I believe that Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney knew a lot more about this. How much more they knew about it, I don't know. But I believe that it was in their interest, and they saw it as in their interest, to close this story down, to pay off the family, and to avoid further discussion about it. Did this extend to Gerald Ford? I mean, I really don't know. But I somehow imagine nice Jerry Ford trying to do what he thought was the right thing, which is say, I'm sorry to the Olson family. Uh, We're never going to hear I'm sorry in the current administration from anybody, certainly not from the president of the United States. But how much of the story did he know? How much of the story was he privy to? I think less rather than more.
1: Absolutely. I, I think that's the way these things work. I mean, the president doesn't, again, it's a question of desire. The president doesn't want to know, nor should the president be told, because then the president is involved in a cover-up. His, his top aides know a great deal because they're told by the CIA, you know, you're going to have to get this under control. Whether they were told exactly why, what was at stake in this, you know, this, this story is, in, in one way, this is not rocket science. Either this is a suicide or it's a murder. There's nothing else. So if, if there's questions about whether it's a suicide and you're told you, you've got to really shut this down, you may not have been told it's a murder, but what else is there? So in a certain sense, you do know. Implicitly, you know that we're talking about murder here. I don't think that thought probably occurred to, to Gerald Ford. He was simply told that this was an LSD experiment that got you know off the rails. It went awry. It went awry. But his aides knew more than that. They knew this was a very high-priority matter, and we had to shut it down. We know that because it's in, the, it's in the White House correspondence between Rumsfeld and Cheney. We know that they were aware that there were very high stakes in this. They don't, in, that, in those exchanges, say what the stakes were. But, it, you know, obviously the other stake is murder. And this again gets to the question of desire. If the stake is murder, there had to be a hell of a motive. If the CIA committed murder of an American citizen in New York City in 1953, it's not because they liked doing it, it's because they thought they had to. Well, then you get to an even, you know, a really tough question is why?
2: It's been a privilege, by the way, to work on this. And I thank you. I do! I do! It has been a great privilege. It's one of the most interesting, complex stories I've ever encountered.
1: It's like an addiction, actually. Once the wormwood dog bites you, it never lets loose. Um, and is that what a, if, is that what happened? If there's a drug component of, of this story, I think it's the story itself which becomes. It I don't know what it does. Maybe we'll learn more about this as as we you know have the experience of audiences watching this thing. But there's something about this story that really takes hold of you and you do not forget it yeah and what is that thing I don't know that's Errol
0: Morris and Eric Olson Wormwood is available now in six parts on Netflix be sure to check out our other episodes which feature the actor Peter Sarsgaard and the journalist and author John Ronson this podcast was produced with help from Pineapple Street Media